Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would please help us make sense of your word. You've, you've promised us in the Psalms the unfolding of your words does something. It gives us light. And we confess we need that to see, to make sense of the world, the sin in our own hearts, the, the direction we need to go, how we need to treat others. We need your light, your truth. We pray, Lord, you would unfold that to us this morning and change our minds and hearts from the simpleness of our sinful ways and cause us to have great understanding of your value, your supremacy, your worth, your beauty. Please help me to preach clearly. Please help those listening, Lord, by your spirit as well to to hear clearly and desire to obey what you have said. We ask you to bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, with today being July 4th, independence from Britain was how many years ago? Any math whizzes? 1776, today's 2021. 245. 245 years ago today. Let's consider this trivia question about the Revolutionary War, not as just a random fun thing to do because of today's date, but because it's actually going to help us move towards our passage today. So here's the trivia question. Don't say anything out loud, but just think if you know the answer. It's going to be multiple choice. Think if you know the answer in your mind. When we think about the earliest American flags used during the Revolutionary War, what animal was featured on the flag? And I'll give them to you in order of size. Was it A, a buffalo, B, a turkey, C, an eagle, D, a rattlesnake? What animal was featured on the flag? The earliest American flags used during the Revolutionary War. You got the animal in mind of what you think it is? If you thought rattlesnake, you are correct. The Gadsden flag, which is controversial today, it's taken on different meetings, different political and ideological groups have adopted it, but if we go back to its first sightings, the Gadsden flag, it featured a rattlesnake coiled above the phrase, don't tread on me. Maybe you've seen it. It's a yellow flag, a yellow background. It stands out, it's bold, it catches attention. And that flag was flown as a battle cry for American independence from British rule. And so with its tongue out and fangs out, body coiled in defense, the rattlesnake and the motto basically says, if you dare put your foot down on me, I will bite. I will strike. Why should we consider that? Take note of that? Well, precisely because there is a flag that Jesus is waving today for Christians to rally behind. And you know what the motto is from the passage today? It's this. Die to self and expect that others will tread upon you. That's actually the bold, provocative motto that Jesus is putting forth 
for those who would identify with him. Expect to be stepped on is essentially what Jesus is teaching us here. And he's not talking about a national sense or even at the level of a state or, or some kind of family, people group. He's talking about at just the personal, individual level. Your individual relationships expect to be stepped on. Die to self. To see what I mean, I would invite you to turn with me. Let's go to Matthew 5. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. Matthew 5, verse 38. And again, this is on page 810 if you need to use a Bible under the seats in front of you. And we're here on the Sermon on the Mount. This is describing how citizenship in heaven operates here on earth. And we're in the law section. We're actually in part five of six of statements directly about the law where Jesus is saying this refrain over and over again. You have heard that it was said, but what? How does it, how does it change? You've heard that it was said, but but I say to you, and then Jesus, what he does each time in these six statements, we're just going to look at one of them today, each time what he's doing is cleaning up bad applications of the law. He's cleaning up and clearing away misunderstandings about the law. So let's look at this. This is Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. The word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Amen. I pray we would come to understand how much Jesus highly esteems dying to self in the way that he teaches here about retaliation and our inclination to oppose others. Here is kingdom instruction on how we handle it when others step on us personally. And not just step on us, but step toward us in some very uncomfortable ways. And the immediate effect of, of this teaching, as Jesus is teaching on a large hillside, a mountainside, and everyone's listening, the immediate effect of the teaching would be to change the way God's people think about the times that they are wronged and personally poked and prodded by others. If you want to use a modern-day kind of street language, it's being okay with being on the short end of the stick. This is all getting at the core of what Jesus is saying here. And to track along with these verses and, and unfold them this morning, uh, there's two different postures that Jesus is putting forth here, and it's actually going to serve as two different categories of framing up this message to help you track along. I want to give you those two different postures. The first is the posture of self-regard with fists clenched. That's the posture described in verse 38, and I want to show you that. The posture of opposition and retaliation, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, justice. Clenched fist, self-regard, I know what you've done, and something's coming back to you. 
But there's another posture, a second posture that Jesus gives more time to unpack in these verses, and that's verses 39 to 42, and that's the death to self posture, an open-handed posture. So not fists clenched, tight-fisted, it's, it's open-handed, a willingness to die to self. That's verses 39 through 42. And Jesus doesn't want us to be confused about it, so he doesn't just say the words die to self. He describes what it looks like. This is a beautiful passage. Between these two points of tight-fisted self-regard and open-handed dying to self, between those two points in the sermon, we'll talk about the gospel and how it changes us and even enables us to live out what Jesus says. So first, Look again at verse 38. Here's, here's the tight-fisted self-regard. Look at verse 38 again. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What does that mean? What does that mean? Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Maybe you've heard it as a phrase people would use to get back at someone. Well, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy. So Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 19, we see these phrases come up. In Exodus 21, if two men were fighting together and they bump into a pregnant woman and somehow they fall upon her or, or were to hit her, if there's any injury whatsoever to that, that developing baby, that when that baby is born, if there was something damaged at the level of the eye, then the one who caused that damage would receive their eye being plucked out or damage to a hand or a foot. It was also used in Deuteronomy 19 for false witnesses. If there was ever a court case where a false witness came forward and told a lie and said, I saw this person do this, therefore you need to put him to death. And it was found out that they told a lie. Deuteronomy 19 tells judges of court cases to show no partiality and apply eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth to the false witness. So what they tried to intend to do to someone would fall back on their own head. They would be put to death if they were trying to lie to get someone else to be put to death. It was a very serious law. In fact, here's the best way to sum it up. Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24.20 sums it up when it says, if anyone injures his neighbor... As he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. That's Leviticus 24, 20. And this Old Testament law was good. Think about the goodness of a law like that. Can you think of why that would be good? It actually puts boundaries around unrestrained violence. And if somebody were to accidentally hurt you or run over, their, run over your hand with their ox cart as it goes by and you're furious because your hand's now needing to be bandaged up and you can't do the farm equipment you would want to do and you think, I'm going to kill that person. Can you see how eye for eye, tooth for a tooth would hold back? You would instantly know, no, it's not right. I can't kill that person for that. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was good for civil authorities to enact justice and to keep boundaries. But here's the problem. 
Here's the problem, and here's why Jesus is talking about it. By Jesus' day, this phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it became this motto of don't tread on me. It became this motto, not, not at a national level, not at the level of a state or even a community. It became this personal bravado brand where somebody would say to someone else, do not mess with me. Don't ask to borrow my things. Don't even ask. And we know this because the the Pharisees taught others to take the law into their own hands using this verse in a misapplied way. In other words, the Pharisees taught that human beings could retaliate at any moment so long as they followed the boundaries of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So if someone slaps you, the Pharisees would teach, you can slap them back, but just don't do anything more than slapping them back. You could see how this would cause a lot of personal feuds. In fact, it caused Jews in the first century to think, what God wants is for me to put retaliation upon another. God wants me to be the vehicle of retributive justice. Not, not the civil authorities, but, but me. If anyone gets in my way. And Jesus knew this was false teaching. Jesus knew that the spirit of Genesis 4, Lamech, was happening in his day. Do you remember what Lamech did? This is after Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Do you remember Lamech? Genesis 4.23, Lamech says, I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And Lamech was cursed for it. All over the Old Testament we hear the Lord say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. But to those Jesus was talking to here, they thought, I'm going to take the law into my own hands. I'm going to be a vigilante. I'm going to be so tough, no one will ever mess with me, take my stuff. No one will hurt me in any way, personally. And I'm not talking just physical hurt me. No one will will insult me or make me embarrassed or call into question my dignity. Jesus saw that, that this was inflaming the idol of self. Ask yourself this morning, what causes you to want to retaliate to someone else or oppose them? What causes that in you? I know what's true for me is true for you because we're all guilty of this problem. Our sin nature. It causes us to regard ourself, the idol of self, as number one. And if anyone would seek to oppose us, our opinions, our ideas, the way we like to do things, our fangs come out. But some of us have gotten so good about not physically retaliating or, or verbally immediately in that moment. What do we do? That, that passive, aggressive retaliation. I'll, I'll get them back later. Oh, they did that to me? They said that? They want to joke about me in that way? They want to put that burden on me? They want to try to use me, take advantage of me? I'll get them back later. And we smile and we walk away. And we're living out that very same principle of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, taking it into our own hands. That's what Jesus was warning against, teaching against here. I would like to ask you, if you're not a believer, maybe you came with a friend today, or maybe you're watching on the live stream, if you're not a Christian, what holds you back? What would hold you back from retaliation? Is it merely that you fear punishment, getting caught? 
Is it just you assume if, if you don't fight back, they're going to think you're weak or afraid? Is it because you don't know about your personal rights, but if you knew what your personal rights were, especially in this country, you would exert your personal rights on anyone else who wants to offend you? I wonder what, what goes off in your mind when you're trying to decide whether you should retaliate or not. That's all contained in this first idea. Tight-fisted self-regard is found in this opening verse, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And before we look at any other verses, it's worth just stopping and thinking about the gospel. Jesus has not died on the cross yet when he utters these words. But those hearing his words would be so dumbfounded with, how am I going to have the motivation to live this out. Jesus knows the cross is coming. He knows that it will be impossible to, to actually let our hands go and not have our finch clenched and, and be kind and show grace and gentleness and be willing to be trampled on by others personally at times. Jesus knows only the gospel will change anyone. And Jesus, even before he goes to the cross, is teaching in such a way where he's simply asking his followers to live out a picture, a living picture of what he already lives out. Do you remember the ways Jesus lived out dying to self before getting to the cross? Jesus, from the very beginning, was born where? The best place to be born in a palace, a hospital? No, he was born in a manger. Nobody had room. Nobody made room for, for a young pregnant Mary. So Mary and Joseph had the baby Jesus. He was born in a manger. From day one of his life until the cross, he was used to being set aside, marginalized. He was a man of sorrows. He was well acquainted with grief. He had no form or majesty of appearance where people loved just to look at him because of his facial features, loved to look at him because of how, how fancy he would go around spouting, you know, I'm God's son, I'm God's king. Jesus came humbly and received insults from others. He received being spit upon. His shoulders received the slash of whips. He was slapped on the face. He was blindfolded and punched in the face. Read the Gospels. See the accounts of, of how he was treated. But he took all this in retaliation. In fact, in the book of Peter, we know that Christ is described as a living stone rejected by men. And he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled, but didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to his Father who judges justly. And he suffered. A man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, gentle, lowly. The thing that balances all of that, you know, is the empty tomb, his resurrection, his glory. But what happened in between? It's the same way we're living now. We feel like Christ is just calling us to die to self a lot of times in the scriptures and 
What's in it for me? How is this going to turn out for good? Do you remember how and why Jesus was willing to be trampled on by others? Because he knew himself to be the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Christ went to the cross to absorb the wrath of God for all the times that you and I put number one, our self, our ego, in the captain's chair and we'll let no one else tell us what to do. And we'll go after them either immediately or silently later or out loud later. We'll get back anyone who would oppose our authority. Christ knows the ways we've rebelled against God in that way. But he goes to the cross and dies as a substitute in the place of anyone who would recognize that sin and and turn from it, trust God, agree their sin is wrong, trust that Christ died on the cross in their place, rose again in triumph. I want to invite you today, if, if you've ever struggled with getting back at other people, if you've ever struggled with how can I even change any part of my character, the answer is Jesus Christ. The end goal is not just you're a little bit better person. The end goal is that your soul can be saved. The wrath of God is going to fall on all those who have ever badly imaged him by taking things into their own hands instead of entrusting him as the judge, entrusting him as the loving father. If you want to be saved from the wrath of God, look to Christ. He's more than just an example of humility. He achieves salvation for those who will look to his sacrifice. So I'm pleading with you today and asking you, if you don't know Christ, turn to him. Trust him. Follow him. He will forgive you for anything you've ever done. The rest of this sermon is all going to be about ways to apply dying to self. But if you miss what we just said about Christ dying in your place trusting in that, being united to him, then you're going to leave here today just trying to earn favor with God, doing the right things, and be moralistic and try to be just a little bit better person. The Christians in the room already know that dying to self is one of the hardest things we've ever been called to do. So keep the gospel in mind as we step through these verses. Let's, let's look at the second half of this passage. If the first half was our fists are balled up, ready to battle with somebody else, then what is Jesus doing here when he says, don't resist the one who is evil? Did you see that in verse 39? Put your eyes back on verse 39. Don't resist the one who is evil. I know my daughters, they're young at home. One of them looks so confused if I ever tell her, don't do that to your sister. Even if she does that back to you, don't do that back to her. From a young age, no one has to tell us to retaliate. It's part of our human nature, our regard for self. But Jesus says here in verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. So here he is. He's opening it up. He's showing us here's how we might live in a way that dies to self. What does he mean when he says don't resist the one who is evil? What would you do? Imagine for a moment you are a local police officer or imagine you are a military active serviceman, servicewoman. Imagine you're a judge here in Austin or a school teacher for that matter. Some of you don't have to imagine some of these things. But truly, just for a moment, imagine 
you have one of those roles in society. What would you do if somebody came up to you, pointed at you and said, you say you're a Christian? Yeah. Oh, and you're also a policeman? Or you, you say you're a Christian and you're a soldier? Oh, you're a Christian and a school teacher. Okay. What about when Jesus says, don't resist the one who is evil? Why don't you just let that crime go? Why don't you just let that kid interrupt class at school? Why don't you just dismiss the court case? Why don't you just put your guns down and, and leave foreign soil and come back home? Don't, don't try to pursue fighting for our country. What would you do if somebody said to you and they used scripture to say, you don't ever need to oppose evil. You need to pursue being a pacifist. What would you do? Is Jesus teaching here Christians should not oppose evil in any way. We should always just let God take care of it every time. We have, we have no role to play, no responsibility. This is important. You've got to think about this. This passage of Scripture, I want to warn you, these verses that we're getting ready to look at here, this is perhaps the most misinterpreted weapon that a false teacher would love to use on a young or naive Christian or confused Christian. Because I don't know if you noticed it, a few verses later, did you see there in verse 42, give to the one who begs from you? Give to the one who begs from you. Do we take that literally? I mean, you probably have a bank account, don't you? What are you going to do if somebody begs? And then they point to this verse and say, no, no, I'm begging you on the words of Jesus here in Matthew 5, 42, give, give, give me this and, and fill in the blank. What are you going to do? Brothers and sisters, we have to think carefully about what Jesus is teaching here. You remember last week when Christ said, don't take an oath at all, and we balanced that out with other scriptures, how even God himself takes an oath? Well, here, this is just a helpful principle, Jesus is using bold bright language to get everyone's attention, but he knows there's other scriptural principles, even in the Old Testament, that would help balance out what he's saying. So let's walk through this. If we're going to die to self, I don't want you to be swindled out of everything in your bank account. If you're going to die to self, I don't want you to be guilted into things you shouldn't be guilted about. If you're going to die to self, I don't want false teachers swooping in, taking advantage of a misconception of what die to self means. I don't want somebody to, to slap you in the face and start abusing you and physically harming you and you think, I, I guess I'm not allowed self-defense, I'm not allowed. What does Jesus mean by these passages? Let's try to walk through them and, and balance them out, okay? There's three areas Jesus talks about dying to self. When we're offended, when we're obligated, and when someone else makes us their opportunity. When we're offended, when we're obligated, someone in authority obligates us, and when someone else wants to make us their opportunity. Let's briefly look at each one of these. Some of you will think that I'm going to say too much on each one of these verses. It's going to be uncomfortable. Some of you are going to wish I say a whole lot more in how to apply these things. I want to encourage you, talk to one of us. Talk to one of the pastors. We would love to talk more about this. Talk to your fellow church members. You don't have to figure these verses out alone. You can figure them out in our, our loving community here. 
So let's begin. Verse 39 says, don't resist the one who is evil. Is that an absolute literal statement? Well, resist the one who is evil. That word resist means to withstand or oppose or to set oneself against. We know that the scriptures say things like Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2, that civil authorities bear the sword. They can punish crime. This is not Jesus' teaching about national civic levels. Jesus is teaching here about just that personal relationship level. There's a debate over if Jesus is saying an evil person or just their evil deeds. There's a reason Jesus gives these verses right after this phrase, don't resist the one who is evil, because that can sound strange, but he wants to just lay it out. Here's what I mean by that. That's why he gives these verses that follow right after it. It doesn't mean that you should be cowardly, you should condone evil. It means you should die to self. There are things others are going to do to you out of an evil sin nature that they'll do in the wrong degree or the wrong measure or at the wrong time or in the wrong way. And he's about to give examples. And I don't want you to resist that, the evil of that person in that moment. And here's what he means. Let's look at the rest of verse 39. And for each one of these verses, 39 through 42, let's read it in a tight-fisted way, and then let's read it in the way Jesus wants us to read it in that die-to-self way, and then let's explain and apply it. That's the pattern, okay? So verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, tight-fisted response, self-regard, you know what you do back? You slap them back. And if you slap them a little bit harder than they slapped you, you could say, you know what, I... I tried my best to slap you just as hard as you slapped me. Sorry, that was a little bit harder. Do you see how a fight would break out? Family feuds. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, the tight-fisted response is to say, hmm, I'm going to clench my teeth. I will get you back later. It's to say some kind of verbal threat right back. How dare you insult me? How dare you insult me in front of my girlfriend or or my boyfriend, or my family, or, or my children. The Pharisees would love for you to think eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You're allowed to slap them back. But what does Jesus say? Die to self. Look at verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Jesus says, turn to him, the other one also. The slap on the cheek here is not someone trying to kill you and knock your head off and pierce you with an ox goad or something like that. It's a slap on the cheek, an open-handed or backhanded slap on the cheek. This is not talking about a scenario of self-protection, defense from attack. It's not talking about physical abuse. It's not talking about workplace harassment or sexual harassment. That was common in the first century. Rather than just call somebody a name, it would be a slap to the face. You've seen Maybe a family feud where this has happened in a family reunion. Maybe it's happened to you from a family member. Nobody went around just slapping strangers. But often people who knew one another, especially family, a slap to the face was a way to say, be quiet, that's insulting, you shouldn't have said that. But that slap in the face could be so offensive that everything in you wants to retaliate. This is why Jesus says, if you follow me, the way you show that you follow me, you absorb that wrong. You turn the other cheek. 
Do you remember what it says in the book of Proverbs 19.11? Good sense makes one slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook an offense. This is like when you're driving in Austin and somebody cuts right in front of you in the most obnoxious way possible. And then you maybe read a, a bumper sticker or something on the back of the car that makes you even more mad because then you think, I, I know a lot about that person and that's why they did that. That's in one sense a proverbial slap to your cheek and you just got insulted. They just cut you off in traffic. Do you then ensue in road rage? Do you ensue in staying on your horn as long as possible? No. You turn the other cheek. You, you slow down and you let, oh, I guess the Lord, in his providence, I'm, I'm not going to go. They're going, I'm going to stop. I'm going to let a few others go. You don't retaliate. Or perhaps, maybe if you're, if you're younger, well, maybe if you're older, maybe if you're on social media is what I'm getting at. If you're on social media, how often do insults fly through the air? Where somebody twists your words or insults you or makes a statement that you don't like and you are offended. They haven't broken the law in any way. There's no lawlessness, but they've simply just offended you. Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek. Don't disown them and kick them off and write back other silly things to them. He's saying, turn the other cheek. Behave yourself. Have decorum. Have civility. Be gracious to them. And then in verse 40, Jesus says another instance where you might be offended. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, the tight-fisted response, you're not getting a penny out of me. You're going to sue me? Well, I'm going to sue you in court. If you win, I'm going to sue you the next week. You're not getting any of my money, any of my assets, any of my things. You're getting nothing. What does Jesus say? If anyone would sue you, which is highly offensive, even public shame, public offense, Jesus says, let him have your cloak as well. What does that mean? Well, the tunic was that inner garment. You remember when Jesus was on the cross, the soldiers cast lots for his tunic. It was seamless, woven in one piece. It was valuable. The tunic was worn on the inside. The cloak was actually something of a matter of personal safety. You couldn't take someone's cloak, even in the court of law. If somebody won a case against you, they couldn't take your cloak. We know that even from the Old Testament, when the sun would go down and somebody put a pledge for someone else, the Old Testament law in Exodus 22 said, you got to give them their cloak back. The sun's going down. Why? The cloak, think of it as that's what's going to keep them warm at night so that they don't freeze. The cloak wasn't this fashion statement. The cloak was kind of a life or death matter. You needed it. The tunic, that was more for comfort. That was more for luxury. I'm not about to ask anyone what undergarments they have on right now. But imagine if you went to the court of law and somebody sued you and they took, they said, I want to take all their their undergarments and all their clothes. You would think that's strange. But in the first century, you couldn't just go to the store and and buy clothes after clothes after clothes. Clothes were expensive. They were hard to come by. You had to find the right sizes. To put it in our modern day context, if somebody were to sue you, there's certain things that they can't go after. There's certain statutory laws that say you can only sue somebody this far for certain crimes and offenses. But what Jesus is saying here is be willing to, to give what they're not even asking for. 
Be willing to make right for your sin without retaliating, without being mad that they would call you out on your sin. Go to them before the court case even happens. Jesus is saying here, settle with your accuser. Be willing to give the one you've offended more than they expect. Yield your rights. What Jesus is not saying is, if someone sues you, go ahead and just give them your property, your house, your car, all your belongings. How do we know that? We know from the New Testament, it says if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Jesus is not calling for just this reckless, all right, have everything. I've offended you. You can, you can have everything. No, Jesus is just saying, Show them in a surprising way. You are willing to accommodate the way you've wronged them and you're willing to help them get more than they might even think they would get because you're so willing to restore the relationship. If they're going to sue you and take your, your tunic, give them your cloak as well. But beyond just being offended, Jesus gets into the realm of when we're obligated. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, the Fists that are tight would say, I'm not going more than one inch of a mile with you. And you know what? When I go a mile with you, I'm going to complain the whole time. You're going to hear it in your ear the entire mile that you should not be obligating me this way. Bosses and employers know what it's like to have to obligate employees at times to, to do things. They know their employees might not want to do it. Nobody wants to hear complaining and grumbling and I'm not going to go an inch further than what you've asked. Jesus is not wanting us to clench our fist if someone forces us to go a mile. What does he say? Go with them two miles. This is that phrase. You've heard the phrase, right? He goes the extra mile. We have made this a cultural phrase that describes what? Just someone who works hard. They go the extra mile. They're so considerate. Oh, they're they're coming to my house to, to help with something. They went above and beyond what I thought they would do. Well, you, you ask them to come to their house. They're getting a paycheck. They're working their job. This verse is talking about when their boss asks them to do something that they don't want to do. Not you as the customer that, that they're trying to smile to. This verse is talking about primarily in the first century what Roman soldiers would do to first century Jews. Roman soldiers, one Bible scholar says it this way, An ordinary Roman soldier could legally commandeer a civilian to help him, for example, to carry their luggage, something like that, a certain distance. And Jesus' followers are not to feel hard done and irritable in those cases, as if they're personally insulted. They're actually to double the distance and accept the imposition cheerfully. This is like Simon of Cyrene in Matthew 27 when he's compelled to carry the cross of Christ. In modern day language, what Jesus is saying here is if you are a renter and your landlord asks you to do something and you think this is such an annoying obligation, he's not asking you to break the law, but he is an authority over you in some measure. If your landlord's asking you to do something, if your HOA rules seem silly in your neighborhood, So whether it's demands by your local neighborhood, apartment complex, whether it's demands from city, local, state, even if you're working jury duty, there's all kinds of demands that can be foistered upon us by those in authority over us. Jesus wants Christians to be those who willingly go the extra mile in those situations. That's how they will show people they are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. 
Jesus wants to rid ourselves of that dangerous thinking of what's in it for me? What's in it for me? How, what can I get out of it? He wants us to stop letting that question swirl around in our brain when others in authority are asking us to do something. Well, we've seen what it's like when we're offended to die to self, when we're obligated to die to self, and here's the last portion. We'll close with these two verses. It says this in verse 42. Let's just read it in a clenched fist way. No one's getting my hard-earned money. No one's going to get anything from me. Do not ask me for anything. No one deserves a handout from me. But what does Jesus say in verse 42, open-handed way? Give to the one who begs from you. And the clenched fist would say later in verse 42, why should I let somebody borrow that? I can't trust them. They might scratch it. They might, they might forget to return it. They're going to inconvenience me if I have to let them borrow that. If it's money, they're not going to actually borrow my money. It's a pandemic. I'm going to let them borrow toilet paper. They're not going to bring that back. I'm just checking to see if you're awake. There's ways that people want to ask things of us where it feels so uncomfortable. But Jesus says in verse 42, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, is this a literal reading? Can teenagers run up to their parents and say, don't refuse the one who borrows from you or asks, begs, uh, I need the car. And they pull out their Bible and you think, this is what it's like to raise them in a Christian upbringing. <laughs> a teenager can't do that. Does this mean when you get mailers in your mail from different charities that say, we need these funds, please help us, or you get certain pictures attached of, of different things you have to give? I'm being serious when I say, Christian, brother or sister, you have to think carefully about these verses because there's two ditches that we might fall into, okay? On the one hand, we might fall into the ditch where all we think about is the ways people take advantage in evil ways and all the scriptures that, that tell us don't be a bad steward, don't enable that problem, don't give to that, don't trust that. And we just stay in that ditch and we don't find ourselves being generous or giving. There's another ditch we fall into where we take verses like this or we've had people teach us wrongly that, that these verses mean you, you just give without thinking. You don't have any discernment. What are we supposed to do if we can't take the bare face of these words? How do we trust Jesus here and live this? Well, we let the scriptures help us on the difficult questions. Did you, did you notice how verse 42 seems so different than the other verses? I mean, Jesus is talking about if somebody slaps you and insults you, don't slap back. If they slap you or sue you or obligate you, don't retaliate. Why does he switch gears and talk about giving? This is our clue to show Jesus wants us to do what? Die to self. Stop thinking merely about what's good for me. So here, in verse 42, here are some boundaries. I want to encourage you to be generous in giving, but before I do that, here are some boundaries, because some of you don't know these boundaries. Do not be hasty to give to others. Don't be hasty. Whether someone's in need or someone wants to borrow something, don't be hasty where you don't think about it. You do it without thinking. Why? 
Proverbs 19.2. It says, zeal without knowledge is not good. Whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. You should know a little bit about who you're giving to or why you're giving, especially so that if somebody asks you later, oh, you let that person borrow that or do that, and you can speak intelligently about it. Stewardship is involved here. Personal property is a real thing. If you look at the book of Acts, they gave of possessions. They still met in homes. It's not that all the early Christians just got rid of everything they had and they wondered, where are we going to meet? Where are we going to sleep? They had personal possessions. We know from Proverbs eleven fifteen and seventeen eighteen and twenty two twenty six, you should not just be quick to put up security and pledge for your neighbor. I'll cover your debts. I'll be your co-signer. I'll, I'll lend you that. I'll do. We're not to be quick and hasty and thoughtless when we do those things. There's a boundary. We want to be good stewards. Here's another boundary. First Thessalonians four. We're told to work with our own hands and walk properly before outsiders, so we are dependent on no one. And then 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul said to those in Thessalonia who were so generous, they loved to give handouts maybe too much. You know what he said to them? He said, when, when we were with you, even we gave you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So if someone is able to work and they're not wanting to work, try to identify that. That could be a boundary. If someone's perpetually mooching off you, they're so lazy, Matthew 18 actually tells brothers and sisters to, to call out sin. There's a lot of boundaries in the New Testament that want us to be good stewards and informed and not slack, rapid, haphazard. And some of you love those verses. In fact, you knew I was going there because those are in your mind. And here's where it might get uncomfortable for some who only stay in, in those verses. Again, those who didn't know those verses, you got to have those. But here's where it might get uncomfortable. Ask yourself this question. What circumstances would stir your heart with compassion to give to a needy person? Jesus wants you, if, if you're willing to die to self, he's asking you by this passage today, what would cause you to give to somebody in need? They show a bunch of documentation of all the people they went to, of all the health disabilities they have, why they're homeless, and they give you their whole life history, and you're sure without a shadow of a doubt the, the resource you give them will be used only for their well-being, and it won't be squandered in an unhealthy way, and you can be sure that you were not a bad steward. I mean, what is it? What would it take for you to give to someone else? What would it take for you to obey Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you. As we land the plane in this sermon, I just want to make a final comment or two about homelessness. And then we'll, we'll wrap up. If you live in Austin, you've seen homelessness in the newspaper. You've heard it on the news. You've, you've seen an influx and a deflux and an influx again of different homeless camps. You've seen people fly signs at intersections You've probably been approached. If you live a certain distance away and it doesn't seem to affect your daily life, you've probably at least just talked about it with family. Homelessness is complex. Many who are homeless are not willing to work, but many have issues that prevent them from being able to work. How do we consider homelessness 
I'm just using this as one example, a test case for this verse. There are folks who are terribly desperate, living on the ground with no food, no bathroom, no way to get clean. Maybe it's the soup kitchen or maybe you just see somebody out there. Maybe like me, you've seen people get out of a car, fly a sign at an intersection, hop in the car when nobody's looking, but all the while acting like they're injured when, they're, when they think somebody is looking. Maybe like me and others, you've heard people say, you know what, there's people who are just advertising. They're not begging, they're just advertising. See the signs, see the jokes. Here's what Jesus is calling us to do today. Jesus is calling each one of us to establish our own conscience for biblical reasons for our moral choices and responses to hard questions. And here's what I mean by that. Some of you, your conscience would be pinched. You would be sinning if you ever gave cash to someone who was begging to you because you know, God, I, I might be a bad steward. That, this might be enabling drink or drugs or substances. I, I can't give cash. Jesus is asking you, though, here, what are you willing to do? Food is a perpetual need. Maybe you'd be willing to give food. Maybe you'd be willing to give socks or a water bottle. Maybe you think, I can't even give food because you know what? That'll create this cycle of somebody's going to keep coming back here for food when they need to be over here at this shelter or this other place. I'm simply asking you today, work through the questions in your mind of what is your conscience able to do so that you would give? Because we can all give the reasons why we won't. I'm just interested in knowing what would cause you to obey verse 42, to give to somebody who begs. Help those who are truly in need. Try to find out if someone's truly in need. Yes, there are foolish ways to offer help, but do you have a strategy and a principle that encourages compassion for where there is great need? Asking a needy person questions is wise. If cash unsettles your conscience, food might be a logical step. If food unsettles your conscience, maybe some, some safety razors or socks, underwear. I talked to one mature Christian person who has great experience ministering to homelessness. You know what they told me? They actually do give cash, a little bit, two or three dollars, nothing major, no big sums of cash. But they give a little bit of cash, and they told me they do this because they have the opportunity that really lights up that person's eyes. They have the opportunity to then make a personal connection and tell them there is hope in Christ to change. They told me they always try to make a personal connection, telling somebody if they're serious about change, the local church is a place where that can happen, that the gospel empowers change. This person doesn't just randomly hand out money, hand out supplies in a big box and go off. In fact, this person told me that they've seen people at times have a box of stuff, even evangelists who toss out a bunch of supplies and, and everybody's thankful for it, but they feel kind of like a number. There was no personal connection. There is a markedly different effect, this person told me, when we make a personal connection and tell somebody there's hope in the gospel and we communicate that, no matter how short the interaction is. I hope that you will talk together about wise ways to engage with the needy around you. And here in Austin, we can't escape it. I would love you to think about this deeply. Talk to me, one of the other pastors. We're not going to shame you for 
for the questions you ask us. Ask us the hardest questions you've got. But let's try at the end of the day to know that, that we want to die to self. If someone slaps you, sues you, begs from you, borrows from you, because you're a Christian, all the more die to self. There's an echo of 1 Corinthians 6, 7 here. Why not rather be wronged? Christians surrender themselves and suffer wrongfully. That's how we overcome evil. We overlook personal insults. We overlook inconveniences. At times, we forgo our rights. We actually expect to be sinned against. We let go of forms of personal retaliation. We are willing to spend and be spent for others. We expect to be on the short end of the stick. We yield our own rights. Sometimes we we see the rightness of being wronged by another and not going after them and being hard towards them. Surprise others with how often you die to self. This will show others you believe in a final judgment. This will show others that you want to reflect Christ, you trust him. This will show others and give you confidence that you follow Christ. God is the father of all mercies, all comforts. He will comfort you in the ways you get trampled on. And whenever somebody is surprised at the way you are generous and die to self, the way you don't retaliate in an insult, and they ask you, why do you live this way? You could tell them, because my Savior provides salvation by living this way. He showed me grace and mercy when I sinned against him. For the good of others, for the supernatural joy you will experience, and for the glory of God, turn the other cheek. Let's pray.